Well, hello, friends. Uh, my name is Brad. I'm part of the teaching leadership team here at Jericho Ridge, and I want to welcome you into this online space together as we launch into our teaching time. I grew up in a small town in northern BC, and I can remember becoming aware of different and diverse Christian communities and their practices. And part of that notion was linked to the topic of today, and that is confession. I began to observe that the word confession meant very different things to very different people. For example, one of my friends, I grew up Roman Catholic, and when she used the word confession, she meant she was going to physically go to her physical church building, sit in a small room, and unburden her soul and the sins that she had committed to her priest who would pronounce forgiveness on her behalf to God. And it was a sacrament, and it was treated by her with a, a strong degree of reverence. There was a, a structure to it. Father, forgive me for I have sinned. It's been X number of weeks since my last confession. My cousins, on the other hand, were Lutheran, and when we would occasionally attend church with them, confession was done prior to communion, kneeling at the altar. And they would approach and they would kneel and say something like, please hear my confession and pronounce forgiveness in order to fulfill God's will. I a poor sinner, plead guilty before God of all sins. I have lived as if God did not matter and as if I mattered most. My Lord's name I have not honored as I should. His worship and prayers have faltered and I've not left. His love have its way with me. And so my love for others has failed. There are those whom I have hurt and those whom I have failed to help. My thoughts and desires have been spoiled with sin. What troubles me particularly is that dot, 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 and then they would fill in the blank with whatever it was that they wanted to confess. And then as they approached the communion table, absolution of sin would be offered. And there was this sense, as they described it, of just freedom coming to them. My Reformed friends uh, almost seemed to revel in this part of their spiritual lives. They used terms like worm to describe how lowly they felt, and they would sing songs and hear sermons about how horrible the weight of sin was and how awful the punishment of God was going to be. And when I questioned them about what I perceived was a lack of emphasis on God's grace, they noted that for them, by magnifying sin and how serious their personal offense was against God, they actually felt more grateful for God's grace. And so for them, there was just this profound relief in the notion that judgment could be avoided in seeking God's forgiveness. Now, my Anglican friends saw this as more of a communal expression of the church. There was an exhortation uh, by the minister uh, in every gathering to a form of general confession that was said out loud, and altogether, everyone present participated in that, followed by the assurance of forgiveness, and then they would make the sign of the cross. And that communal dimension was important to them because it reminded them that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you might forgive me if I grew up a tad bit confused about what in the world Christians believed about confession and repentance and how it was to be practiced. It seemed to me that we shared the theology of a necessity of confession, but we varied quite widely in the practice of it. So what is a person seeking absolution or the experience of forgiveness of sins to do? We're in a series this November at Jericho called Sorry, Learning to Forgive. And we began last weekend by exploring the notion of forgiveness being a multi-staged 
process that involves both turning away from things and also turning toward. And so we looked at how God offers us forgiveness. And today we're going to dig into this at that personal level and ask questions like, what does it mean to tell God that I'm sorry? Do I need to tell another person? Do I need to speak it out loud? Do I need to do some form of penitential action that proves that I'm sorry? And for guidance, we're going to look into the Psalms, particularly Psalm 51, which is perhaps the most commonly used psalm on this topic. And the text of Psalm 51 is written by David. It's one of the giant figures in the Old Testament. It's rooted in his moment of greatest failure. And kids, if you want to dig into this, VeggieTales has a great animation entitled King George and the Ducky, and you'll definitely want to check that out. But the account of David's transgressions is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. It's a pretty long list that involves, just we'll keep it PG, lies, assault, forced drunkenness, adultery, and murder, just to name a few things perpetuated by this so-called man after God's own heart, David. And David denies all of this. And after he's caught in his lies and he's called out by the prophet Nathan, he writes Psalm chapter 51, which is his personal expression and experience of repentance. So let's look together at the text of Psalm 51. It's going to help us shape our understanding of the three invitations that we hear around the topic of confession. So the first invitation is expressed in the phrase, cleanse me. Let's start in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. Because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me, clean me from my guilt, purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. So here we see the first thing necessary for us to walk out the road of saying that we're sorry or receiving forgiveness is that you have to actually admit or acknowledge that what you have done is wrong. Verse 3, I recognize my rebellion, David says. Verse 4, your judgment against me, God, is just. Intriguingly, in his sin with Bathsheba, David is at first completely unwilling to do this. And so God has to send someone into his life, the prophet Nathan, who calls him out on this, who points out to David that he is dirty and in need of a good cleansing. So you don't always see it ourselves. Think about it this way. We have a dog. Our dog's name is Poppy. She's our little rescue dog. And like many dogs do, she likes to roll around things in the park. Smelly things. Dank, stinky fish guts at the beach or garbage that someone's left beside the path. And so after these events, she comes home stinking to high heaven. But the goofy thing is that she doesn't seem to be bothered by the smell one Bit. She would be perfectly happy to go through her rest of her life smelling like a garbage can. 
But since she lives with us, we know that she's defiled. It may not even be apparent immediately visually, but your nose tells you, oh, this dog needs a bath. And we can often recognize her defilement before she can even. And friends, the same thing is true often for you and me when we get involved in sin. We may not be ready to admit or acknowledge that we are in a place where we are defiling ourselves. I know that I am a master of self-deception. And so I can convince myself of all kinds of things. And maybe you can too. Maybe you can say things like, well, it's not really gossiping. I'm just sharing information that I heard about that person with others who happen to feel the same way that I do. Or, well, it's not really stealing. It's just a little bit of money or a product that I snuck away. I mean, my company is so large, it's really not going to make a difference and no one will notice anyways. See, friends, when we refuse to be honest with ourselves, with others, and ultimately with God, we are not walking out the path of life. The road to forgiveness always begins with repentance, recognizing that we have done wrong. And that's why David starts in verse 2 with a recognition of a need for God's mercy. He says, wash me, clean me up. I'm dirty, remove my guilt, purify me. In verse seven, he uses the language again of being clarified or purified with hyssop branches. And this actually comes all the way from the book of Exodus and the deliverance that God wrought for the ancient people of Israel on the night of the Passover. They were instructed on that day to take a hyssop branch and dip it in the blood of the Passover lamb and they put it on the doorposts of their home as a way of signifying that the penalty for sin had been paid. And hyssop branches in Numbers and Deuteronomy were used in many ancient rituals of purification. And so David is appealing to that tradition of both recognizing the need for his, his sin and also for cleansing. And there's one clarifying note that we should also make, uh, and that is just around some of the language that we find in uh, chapter 51. This notion of uh, that I will be clean if I am washed whiter than snow. And there are those through history and even in our day and time who've interpreted this language to signify a connection with skin color. And we need to just clarify that and say this is not the case at all. This is written by a Middle Eastern person, David, who has dark skin. And so this is not a statement of pigment superiority, and it should never be used to justify white superiority or privilege. David then moves, uh, after verse 7, into the second thing that he wants from God in his prayer of confession. He wants to be cleansed. Secondly, he wants to be restored. Give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. As we dig in here, we have to clear up a few misconceptions just so that we're not hearing what David is not saying. 
When David says, for example, against you and you only have I sinned, he is not saying that somehow he doesn't feel that he sinned against Bathsheba when he inappropriately used his power and position as king to coerce her and force her into his harem. He's not saying that he did not sin against her husband Uriah when he wrote a letter sending Uriah to the front lines of battle knowing full well that he would die at the hands of the enemy archers. David sinned against other people. David is simply getting to the place here and expressing that he agrees that sins against other people are also offenses against the Almighty who made people in God's image. Let me point out a particular example that's rampant in our society. So you might tell yourself, oh, it's just some innocent fun online. It's just a few clicks. It's just a few images. I mean, Brad, who is it really hurting? Friend, the exploitation of women and young people is rampant in our culture today, and it is fueled by just a few clicks. And so lest you think that, oh, well, that's just a kind of an individual thing. I'm not really hurting anyone. Maybe it's even just a sin against God. Friend, you need to understand that that is impacting your marriage. It's impacting your relationships with other humans who more easily slide into that place of commodification in your mind. Sin has very real consequences. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that next weekend. The other thing that we need to clarify and address is that David is not saying that somehow the Holy Spirit disappears and will never come to you again if you sin. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, we read about a story where David as a young man was serving in the court of Saul, who was the king before him. And Saul over and over and over again egregiously sinned against God. And God finally said, that's fine. I'm going to take my spirit away from Saul. And he does. And so David is writing this poetic refrain from maybe that place, and also from an Old Testament, Old Covenant perspective. He's expressing a genuine desire for God not to do the same thing to him as God did to Saul. The other thing that to me is interesting is that in his confession, David doesn't go into all of the details of what happened, although he may very well have done that in private prayer seems that for David, that isn't most important. What's most important is his acknowledgement that his relationship with God, as well as his relationship with others, has been damaged by sin. And he recognizes that that damage has led it to a place of needing restoration. And again, this requires that we tell ourselves the truth. In his work, Letters to My Children, uh, Daniel Taylor makes this observation, quote, In recent years, our society has tried to solve problems by having people simply repeat over and over to themselves, You are okay. You are a good person. You are beautiful as you are. But our spirits know that this is a bunch of baloney. We know that there's a lot of ugliness in us and that something radical must be done about it. There's only one person whose affirmations can take away that ugliness, and that is the person who made us, the person who knows how we work. God does not affirm or ignore our ugliness as the world would have us do. Instead, God offers us, excuse me, forgiveness for it.
the wonderful news of the gospel is that God has made a way for you and I to experience that restoration. Let's look at the final of our three invitations that David implores. The first one, cleanse me. The second one, restore me. And the final movement of the psalm, David invites God to use him. Let's read in verse 13. Then I will teach your ways to rebels, and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves, and then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. The bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. See, David, once he recognizes that he has done something wrong, he wants to regain his ministry. He wants to again lead his people. He especially wants to make, we know from his history and his writings, careful preparations for the building of the temple. And we have to acknowledge that David did much good in his life. He served the Lord faithfully. But David also had to live with the consequences of his actions. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that also next week. David longs in this text to be used again by God to build the temple, but God actually says no to David. David comes to recognize that because of his sin, certain things are off of the table for him. But it's interesting to note that Solomon, who is the child eventually born to Bathsheba, is actually chosen to be David's successor. And in God's grace, Solomon is the one who does supervise the temple construction. And this, friends, I just see as a powerful evidence of God's grace at work. The very offspring that comes out of David's greatest failure is the greatest person that God uses to complete the temple. What a testimony of God's capacity to restore all things. But it's not to minimize David's sin. David still has to face the fact that he is not invited by God to do those things because of his sins. And so, friends, I want us as we move into a time of communion to, to take a moment and engage in self-reflection. Not of the navel-gazing variety, but a kind of sober self-examination that can lead us to confession. And some of the other Psalms are great places to start. Uh, for example, I've been starting my days this week with Psalm chapter 139, and I just take a few moments in the quietness as I start the day, and I get quiet and I read the words of the text in Psalm 139 that says, Search me, O God. Search my heart. Search my thoughts. If you find anything there that I've done wrong, please show me. 
And so then I just sit with my journal and I take out a pen and a paper and I trust God's spirit to illuminate areas of my life. I actually treat my day a little bit like a movie the day prior and I play it back. I start with the beginning of the day and I try and think about the events of the day. I break the day down into a couple of blocks before lunch, you know, noon till 6 p.m. and then the evening. And for each block, I just ask myself a couple of questions. Can I think of any times that God's bringing to my mind where I've stepped out of God's plans and purposes where I've sinned? Can I think of anything that God's delighted in, something that, that I've done right? Or have, can I think of anything that is a duty or invitation of God that I've said no to or maybe I've neglected? Again, this isn't for the purpose of making me feel horrible about ourselves. This is actually a long-standing tradition in the life of the church. It's called the examine. And by exploring our conscience to see where we're out of alignment with God and allowing God to bring us gently back into it, we can experience that full forgiveness that God offers. Richard Foster says it this way, in the examine of conscience, we are inviting the Lord to search our hearts to the depths. Far from being dreadful, this is a scrutiny of love. There is therefore no need to repress, suppress, or sublimate any of God's truth about ourselves. Full, total self-knowledge is the bread by which we are sustained. A yes to life means an honest recognition of our own evil, but it is also a yes to God, who in the midst of our evil sustains and draws us into his righteousness.